Welcome to this episode of CTU Speaks, schooling Paul Vallis about black history. Homie, I was taught by a Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher. I learned to read and write from a Chicago teacher, so I'm inspired by the fight from my Chicago teachers. This is Tara Stamps. And this is Jim Starros. How are you doing today, Ms. Stamps? I'm great. I'm great. I'm actually um, happy that we're about to jump into this because mm-hmm. I was just with some some older women um, yeah I got an old lady gang that really they old like want to bless gang. me in right. I told them give me a minute I got about you know about seven years and then I'll come back right. um, but there were women who were supportive of of here in Washington and worked in mm-hmm. this campaign and everything like that and they just recently got the mailer talking about Paul Vallis where Paul Vallis you know it's the quote where he says this outlandish thing about black people and CRT and why yeah. it shouldn't be taught and it was so inflammatory right and right. so they were just discussing it and I'm like you know so I started telling them about the show so it's, I think it's in good timing yeah because you know a lot of people have received that mailer they're very upset about it and I yeah. think being and able to be. hear it in in Vallis's come out of his mouth and then for us to kind of really deal with what he's saying and those implications I think is good timing no definitely I think you know it I've had a lot of problems with Vallis from the very beginning, right? Um, I didn't even know about this podcast that he had done a couple years ago until somebody had sent it to me. And just listening to it, it was it was painful to have to listen to this. First, just the overt racist stuff he was saying and just flat out inaccuracies of other things he was saying. And that this is somebody who could potentially be leading one of the biggest cities in the country is insane. And, you know, I think... A lot of times we'll say, hey, Vallis said this or said that, but I thought it was important that on this episode, you know, we decided that we were going to play his actual words. So nobody can claim we just cherry picked it or we took it out of context. This is the context and it's scary ass context. We have uh, Professor David Stovall, uh, who's going to join us, who um, is a professor of black studies, criminology and law and justice at the University of Illinois in Chicago. And so he's going to um, really just take a deep dive into the content and, and the implications of what Paul Vallis is saying and, the, and what it can have on our city. Yeah. And Dave Stovall is a great guy. He actually came when I was teaching at King High School. He would come into my class and talk about black studies and critical race theory to my students. And my students loved him, too. He's able to break it down and really, really show the connections between how all these different things within the community, even if there's no one person that's doing this, that or the other, how it's a system that really sets up how we are as a society and how it keeps certain people down and keeps certain people in those uh, places of subjugation places of subjugation of course when he was saying i'm thinking people in power but places of subjugation is good too is that good was that too many words it's <laughs> like it you said, you well he's a, he a professor i had, to, oh, all, right, I had right. to pull out the big See, words for i got that you one. i got you yeah <laughs> all right so we're here with our guest today david stovall he's a professor of black studies criminology law and justice over at university of illinois at chicago how you doing there today Pretty good, making it as best we can. That's all we can do. What you got to say? What you what you want to drop on us today? History in the United States is 15 minutes ago. And when we get stuck on that idea that history is only 15 minutes ago, we forget some things that were devastational to mm-hmm. communities. Mm. And now when we talk about Vallis's reign here in Chicago to Philly to New Orleans. 
to Haiti. Haiti. Yep. We now have to think about what that has meant for folks, right? Everything from disaster capitalism to neoliberal logics around school and competition, right? This yep. thing is really becoming problematic. And now those who have historically had the least have been guaranteed even less. So I think that's really important to put in our conversation when we think about not just the mayoral race, but really thinking about Chicago writ large and all of the things that we have often erased from our memory. Mm. Yeah, Sister uh, Emma Gaete at the press conference last week said, we don't have amnesia. Mm -hmm. We have not forgotten. And I think that's critical for us to remember. I was right. talking to, um, I, I was talking to uh, one of the sisters who had taught during the, the reign of Paul Vallis, the reign of terror mm -hmm. of Paul Vallis. And she said, I've forgotten those things. I said, no, you didn't. You suppressed them because things that are painful, you don't want That's to right. remember. But once you start recalling it, once you start having that conversation, it opens the floodgate to just how terrible um, that time was and what we're still grappling with because it just laid the groundwork for the school closures and for everything else that we're yet grappling with. So why don't we drop in and listen to one of the, the clips from the interview with Paul Vallis where the host is talking with Paul Vallis about uh, education here in Chicago. Paul, everything you've talked about, it seems to me, is generalizable to all the schools, struggling schools across across the state. They don't apply just to Chicago. But one where there one issue where there has been a, a difference, I think, is is critical race theory or call it whatever you want. Wokeism, right. anti-racism uh, that has been uh, obviously a very controversial issue. Uh, Outside of Chicago, for the most part, is that, you know, because uh, the you know, it's hopeless in the city of Chicago that is so entrenched with Chicago Teachers Union and there's right. no hope of changing it. Um, give us your thoughts about that and about what the effect has been on, on educational standards generally. But number one, when it distracts from quality instruction in the core subject areas, which it is, because we seem to be too preoccupied, too much uh, focusing on those things rather than focusing on our core curriculum, uh, our standards suffer and damage is done. Yeah. So what do you think about his idea that there's a dichotomy between teaching black history and quality instruction? Yeah, this is a classic example of a non-answer. Right. So when you think about the way in which the question was positioned. Right. And this is always the thing in the United States where people can actually use buzzwords without any context or definition and then ask questions to now shift the nature of the conversation. And what Vallis said is actually contradictory to what we know about learning, mm -hmm. right? So when he talks about the core areas, right? Social studies is in those core areas, correct? right? So when he talks about this idea of a standard, and this is the thing in the United States that I think is the most problematic. We have never asked questions around what has justified a standard. Right. We are always in a space around this arbitrary determination on what constitutes learning. Right. And now he can say he can shift that and say, you know, we are diverting away from the standards. Well, let's go to another instead of a standard. What are we what if we call them foundational points? Let's go to a foundational point. 
The United States is a land founded on slavery, genocide, and wrongful land appropriation, according to the framers of the Constitution. So now, if we can start with that particular language, when does historical accuracy now become the threat? Right in the United States, it has always been the threat. So now if we're operating with this, Vallis's non-answer takes us to another place, right? And now we're saying, look, when does it become form and proper to actually give an accurate account of what has happened to people? Mm-hmm. And why does that now get framed as a diversion, right? And this right. is always, this, is, this has been since time immemorial. When people make a claim to self-determination, it is always resonated or rationalized to be something that takes us away that's right. From whatever the standard is. And we have to name it here. Right. Because what we're talking about is not just a standard, but what we're really talking about is white supremacy. Right. And we, we just can't run from that. Right. And when we when we run from that, it makes it even more dangerous. Right. And it's not. And I think it's important to say this for the podcast. White supremacy is different from white people. <laughs> so and I think this is this is important because people of color can also believe the trope of white supremacy, right? This idea around you thinking about white Western European descended, able-bodied, cisgender, heterosexual men and their perceived views and values as normal, right, and good, and now have been framed as the standards. Now, the language gets flipped. People say, well, Jim Tara, learning is learning, says who, under what terms and conditions. And now, how do we have a measure that allows us to talk about learning in terms of improvement in opposed to deficit, right? Because the thing that we always assess in traditional schooling is failure, right? We, right. Never, we never assess improvement. Right. It's always improvement is improvement is almost like this kind of what do you call it? Uh, improvement is almost a uh, unintended consequence. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, it's like, uh, unintended consequence <laughs> so of learning. Right. It's like that because it's is all, improvement. Right. Because we, Crazy. we only get we only get the rhetoric of who's failing. Right. Who's failing. What's what's not happening in the space. And only from particular people of right. who's failing. Right? right. Only certain only certain ethnic groups. Are we ever concerned about failing? You know, we never talk about those poor often white people in other parts of this country and in other spaces who are not doing well academically either, but we do not put a laser focus on their learning because they're, that that is not, they're not part of the plan. Right. right? So you don't, we don't focus there, but I I love um, how you just bring accuracy to that. But one of the things as a, as a, as a middle school teacher, so this is my middle school teacher that I've struggled with is even being able to, have a term like critical race theory, mm-hmm. right? And because my fear or my concern is that once we're able to call it something other than American history, <laughs> right? now we can vilify it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because what I said is, how do you talk about America 
and not talk about <laughs> slavery? How right. do you talk about America and not talk about tribes or indigenous people to this land? How, how do you do that? Like, I'm just curious. Honestly, what does a lesson look like that excludes all of the other primary factors to the story? Three weeks ago, I was at Elmhurst College and I got a chance to talk to a first year, first grade teacher. They showed me this book called George Washington Built a House. Y'all, it, it is surreal, right? I mean, like, I, and not, not just for, the, not just for the, the shock and awe of it. I mean, it is George Washington or some uh, interpretation of what he looked like on the cover with his shirt off and a hatchet, right? And this is, this is, and th- this is the first grade book, right? And the teacher was explaining, she was like, wait, this is, not only problematic, it's not real, right? And then it talks about the house he built was the White House. Now, who do we know <laughs> built the White House, right? So this thing around, so now you got all this hero worship, and he, you know, it's just all this stuff, and like, you know, the hyper, the hyper masculinity of it, right? You know, he got a, he got a shirt off, he swole, he swole up, he got a, <laughs> right, he swole up, he got a hatchet, <laughs> right? You know, about he, it, about like, it. Like, like, he about to do things, right? <laughs> and it says he built a house, and I'm saying to myself, whoa, right? And, but this is the fear factor, right? We don't trust young people to learn and ask questions. And because we don't trust young people to learn and ask questions, we fear when they ask us questions, right? So we create a mechanism like a standard that says, no, we're not worried about you asking questions. We're worried about to what extent do you fail or meet or exceed this standard, right? So this thing around really putting that in context in real time, right? George Washington, for everybody listening, George Washington, just look at this book, George Washington Built a House. I mean, it is surreal, but this is the thing, right? In the United States, we're obsessed with myth, right? And fairy tales. Tales, right? So, and, we, and, we're, and we're obsessed with it, right? Obsessed to, to the, the point, point we'll get mad because Ariel is black. <laughs> Right. I mean, with, with this thing around, she's a fish. Right. And OK, y'all mad. And, and that's and that's the that's the point. That's the real diversion. Mm-hmm. Right. That's what's missing from Vallis's answer. Right. This idea that, you know, you're not diverting from the standards engaging in historical accuracy. You're diverting from any type of learning when you fail to engage in any type of accuracy or truthful interrogation that's centered in young people asking questions of their world. Right. Wow. Let's get to the next question. When you introduce a curriculum that is not only divisive, but a curriculum that further undermines the relationship of children with their parents, with their families, that's a dangerous thing. And for white parents, I mean, how are you going to discipline your child when your child comes home and your child has basically been told, uh, you know, that base, that that uh, uh, their their generation is uh, their race, their parents or grandparents uh, have have discriminated against others and have somehow victimized another person's race. Discipline your child. <laughs> Okay, let's 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 double back because before we went to that piece, you're talking about the fear of questioning. And we slip right into 
child comes home with the question and his response <laughs> was, how are you going to discipline your child? How are you going to kill the question? How are you going to kill the question? Wow. I mean, it's the whole concept that we can question what, what happened in our history and that's somehow going to degrade us and would also somehow degrade my parent in my mind. I don't know what kind of really convoluted questions these kids are asking, but I can't even conceive of that. I, I, even what he's trying to get at really, right. except for the fact that this is going to be destructive to that standard of, of community acceptance. For me, it's bigger and I know it's bigger. And so, you know, as the resident scholar, I need Mm -hmm. you to draw this connection because I think what's missing in many of the conversations is how does the political impact the personal. Mm -hmm. Right. And for me, it only becomes relevant, tangible, something that I can hold on to when you make that real for me. So what is the relationship between trying to this country pretend that slavery didn't happen, um, and so many other things that that people uh, indigenous to this country have experienced related to reparations. Mm-hmm. I think this really becomes important because there's an is an excellent book about this called The Half Never Told, where an economist actually goes through and looks at the vestiges and wages that would be in a would would have been paid to black people over time from 1619, I think he goes to 1863, the writing of the Emancipation Proclamation. And he puts an interesting caveat in the beginning. He says, look, we know that enslavement did not work in these large plantation systems by and large. Systems of enslavement were these smaller, kind of individuated, small, smaller groupings of people. He said, I'm just doing the big ones. So if we just did the big ones and he just he just calculated a living wage, he said, if I calculate a living wage for all the big plantations that weren't even the places where the majority of enslaved people were. The debt would be in the trillions. Right. So now, and he's this is this is an equation just off of a living wage adjusted each hundred years. Yeah. So this thing around. So he lines he lines it up and says, all right, well, let's think about that debt. Right. If you think about that and, and that's his point around the half never told. Right. So this thing, this is just one part of it. Right. That we haven't even gotten in terms of real time, because this is always a thing that the detractors say. Well, what does this mean in real time? Where's the data? And he says, well, look, I'm just giving you a part of the data and it's still an astronomical amount of money. Right. And I think when we talk about this in relationship to life in the United States and now kind of apropos, if we think about what happened to Silicon Valley Bank, Right. And now if we put that in conversation of places like insurance companies like Aetna or J.P. Morgan's Chase. Right. Who actually make their money on loans placed on the back of backs of the enslaved. Right. According to their own work. This isn't David Stovall's conjecture. Right. This is literally if you go into J.P. Morgan's Chase's 
archives, they'll right. tell you this, right? If you go into Edna's archives, they'll tell you this. So now this idea of Vallis talking about, well, how can you discipline uh, children, a kid and say, well, look, if a young person comes, if a, if a white young person comes home and says, look, we heard about J.P. Morgan Chase today in Edna and they had insurance policies on black people who didn't get any return on their labor. Right. Then now, <laughs> no, as a forward thinking parent, you could have an interesting conversation with oh, your yeah. child and be like, well, man, what do you think about that? Yep. So now does that allow us to understand a bunch of other things that are happening? Right. Like disinvestment. Right. When resources are removed from particular communities, like this idea of being displaced right or rationales around displacement right who and it really gets you to a nice space and i'm just talking pedagogically around who is valued and who, and who is determined is yeah, who is determined yep. to be disposable right so now this is this is all of these spaces now become a threat to the myth making mechanism, right? I mean, it goes it goes right That's back to exactly that thing, right. To the myth machine, because now we want to pull back the curtain and see who's the great and powerful Oz. I mean, like, man, right. I mean, you, you were just, I mean, yesterday, yesterday in the Supreme Court, they were deciding on Navajo's people, Navajo people's water rights, right? That had actually been guaranteed since 1908, right? But they've never had access to the Colorado River. And now what's happened to the Colorado River? Dry. It's gone. <laughs> right? So this yep. thing around. So it's like, you know, as our grandmother would always say, they only give it to you when it's broke. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. <laughs> so, and keep on living. <laughs> and and I, I will say, a, as a white parent who has explained to my children some of the problems of our history, they will tell you they've been disciplined. <laughs> So I, Boy, I, do I, I want to pull on that three. Yeah, that the, the idea. This idea is just crazy. I mean, I don't know if Vallis could have better described white fragility than this Ooh. statement right here. Right? I mean, the idea that this. I mean, historically, our people have not been the best, and to acknowledge that to our children is actually what propels us forward. You know, that we've got to make some changes from how things have historically been to make it a better place for everyone. And that's white, the black, problem. other, everybody. That's, and that's, that's the inherent problem. They don't want it better for everybody. <laughs> no. So how do you contain that? Um, and maybe Paul will say something else ridiculous um, and I he'll he answer will. that quite well. I can almost guarantee there that he go. will, but let's, let's see what he has to say about how do we contain this information. If you are a black child, how do you go home and and listen to your parent when 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 your parent has has failed uh, to to uh, to to uh, uh, be successful in in addressing these historically uh, 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 racist institutional obstacles that have denied them uh, you know a chance at equal opportunities? I cannot. And I won't. So please, we're going to turn this first. <laughs> this first wow. one gets the bat. I'm wow. definitely giving it to the scholar because my head is exploding and I cannot I'll clean up brain matter for you. and answer questions at the same time. I mean, like, man, I mean, as as your head separates from the body, I think I'm, I'm having the same <laughs> experience. But this this is the thing. And I think 
what's important for you all's listeners is to understand that this is not as far away as we think, right? It's right well, here. He, right? Like, and, and people think about this, right? And people don't have a mechanism by which to make some determinations on this. And I think what's really important is something that goes back pedagogically to what we know about teaching, how we understand the fusion of content and pedagogy, because here's the thing. We always teach enslavement incorrectly, right? And I think when we talk about enslavement, we have to now think about resistance. We never teach the resistance. And I think this becomes critically important. So now Vallis comes with this just ridiculous rhetoric around, well, if you've only heard the downtrodden part, then how are you going to look at your parents or what have you? That is absent of an entire contextual conversation, right? And I think when we start to piece this out, now we can have very different conversations around things like the war on drugs. We can have a different conversation around disrepair in public housing. We can have a very different conversation around the shifting of content. So now Vallis's points, as ridiculous as they sound, now allow us to think about this in real time, because what he is actually revealing is the issue with teaching and learning, right? This idea around if we are not given the space to engage critically, then these particular opinions flourish, right? And I think this is the point. So you need a critical analysis so you will never have to hear the ridiculousness of what we just heard that's right. Two minutes ago. First of all, I'm, I'm pissed that he started with their failure. Right. Right. Meaning the failure of black parents, mm-hmm. which is always or too often the 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 um, who the axe swings on. <laughs> right. When everything else fails, it becomes the black mama's fault mm-hmm. or the black parents fault that their child can't read, can't learn, whatever. But the other part to that that is so insane is that black people, since we were drug here on ships, have been explaining and talking about whether in schools or in our own churches or communities, the resistance and that we did not come here as slaves. We did not start as slaves. We have been saying this, saying this, even Jesus, they painted white. (laughs) And we got to refute that. I mean, he don't even match the description in their own book. And so we have to fight against that. So I'm, I'm, I'm just annoyed at how easily foolishness can just seep from his mouth and be taken on as like an actual fact or or something that a thinking person would say the other thing that I'm offended by um is that you know I heard the brother say that the meeting of pedagogy and he don't even know what pedagogy <laughs> he doesn't have an educational background nowhere in his resume to even understand what a pedagogy or a standard is <laughs> for heaven's sake but the idea to put the failure of young people learning or the or the uncomfortable reality that yes indeed our people were stolen were commodified, were sold and abused 
for hundreds of years. And then even after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, oh, they figured out yet another way, Mm -hmm. whether that was um, the little loophole in the 13th Amendment. Mm -hmm. Or uh, sharecropping, they figured out a way. America has not wanted to be rid of slavery since they started slavery. Mm-hmm. America has been trying to figure out how they can re-enslave right. black people since the Emancipation Proclamation was signed. And so everything that we see from the disinvestment in our public school system to the to to the the, the school to prison pipeline, all of that goes back to the same premise is how can we commodify black life mm-hmm. and it's and it's i think it's directly connected to that commodification right this idea of you know pauline let me put me on to neoliberalism right and she i love the way she explained it to me she said you know we may never use that term in day-to-day speak but we live it all the time Right. We know exactly that. Say that because some of our listeners may not even be aware of the term Mm -hmm. neoliberalism, let alone what it really means and how it plays out in in day to day. Right. And I think it's important to put it in the context. So when people hear the term liberal, they usually think progressive or left leaning, what have you. That's not what this means here. So neoliberalism actually talks about the freeing of markets. Right. So it's not an individual. It's not a personal space. It's actually the freeing of the free market to do its work into things that were usually publicly funded, like schools, some forms of housing, health care. So now neoliberalism means the market gets freed up to regulate the things that the state did not do well. Right. So now the shift becomes if you are in this particular lot, it is the result of bad choices and not structural inequality. Right. So now to your point it is only about people making bad choices, but we've never talked about what impacts the choice. Right. And that's the thing with neoliberalism. This idea is that the market is the sole arbiter of all things. Right. It's the best thing. So when you look at Milton Friedman, he he would say, look, this whole thing around thinking about anything that the public struggles with. Send it to the private market. Right. And we've seen what that's done in cities like Chicago. Right. So. And the thing that for you, for you all's viewers and listeners, this is the one that always gets me. I did not know the city of Chicago could sue itself. Whoa. (laughs) This is this is this one got me. So the inspector general in Chicago, and this is Daly's last term, when Daly signed the agreement, the contract to sell parking meters. Right. Remember, it was a 99 year contract Mm -hmm. with Laz, right, which is a Scandinavian company. The inspector general said, wait, the price that we sold the contract for Laz made in their first year. Right. So, (laughs) whoa. So I'm asking all my my attorney friends, like, can the city Sue itself, he said, oh, yeah, it's just like the Office of Accountability in the federal government. Right. He said the Office of Accountability sues itself all the time. So the inspector general has 
the, the, the power to file a lawsuit. So they sued daily. Right. And the court decided that was it was in the purview of the mayor's office to make a financial decision that he thought thought was apropos to the needs of the city. Right now. The contract for 99 years. The city gave up and Laz made back in one year. So the inspector general said, how much lost revenue over a hundred years are we losing because of some sale that the mayor was using to cover up debt? Right. So this thing around putting this broader thing in conversation to say, look, these things that now on the back end are supposedly to support the city ends up costing the city, costing the city, scraping Scraping the the city. But but. okay, And even if our viewers or listeners Mm. are not that deep into it. Right. (laughs) Cause you go pretty deep into it <laughs> mm. and know who we sold it to in plain conversation, barbershop conversation. You're talking about selling the meters for a hundred years to a world-class city. This is not like you sold the meters, no disrespect to Iowa, <laughs> right? You know, it ain't like you sold the meters to Duluth. You sold the meters in Chicago, Third largest city in the country, serious, um, what is that, when the tourism, not to mention the people who live here. So even if you're just on that level, you knew that this was a horrible deal. If you're, the mortgage on your house ain't for 99 years. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? Right. And so what I was frustrated by, what I'm always frustrated by, was the selling of the, 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 the toll road. And then the selling of the meters. Right. Because when when I'm looking at my tax bill and when I'm getting triple taxed mm-hmm. on parking, you can see, I'm like, the money y'all would have made off the meters could have took care of this. Yep. Right. Then, so you sold off revenue for your city. It made no sense. And it, But you said it was to cover up debt. So I was curious but, about that part. So the thing is. The city of Chicago, since the late 90s, has always operated like the state of Illinois, has always operated on what they refer to as a functional debt. Right. So this thing around it's like how broke you can be and still live. Exactly. Oh, well, yeah. I look, go through every. Oh, right. That's a teacher's life. That's what right. And that's and, and that's literally. So remember, and it goes back to the state. So the state of Illinois until. Rounders, not round, I'm sorry, until Pritzker's tenure, the state of Illinois had not paid its debt for almost 40 years. Jesus. Right. And Jim Edgar, who was a governor in the early 90s, he he talked about going to Congress saying or the legislature saying, look, y'all, you're going to have to pay this. Right. And when a time by the time that Pritzker started paying the debt, Illinois had like an F rating, his bond rating was like at an F, which is the lowest of the low. Illinois had been anywhere, and this is how it gets so bad. Illinois had been anywhere from 15 to $40 billion in debt. So the city just used that same 
process, right? So you use instead of using taxes to actually fund the needs, they had incurred so much debt that now any revenue they were incurring was paying debt from three years before, right? So now just do that for 40 years, right? So this thing around putting that in context and the idea was, and this is back to neoliberalism, was that the that private industry would float you, right? The private industry would give you what you need, right? And private industry would now ask for little except for what it was that they needed. And in Chicago, what that came into be was land. It's always and, and that's and you know and we got now we got all these slick names right, Lincoln Yards, the seventy eight, all of these new spaces that are now supposed to go up, but the question becomes, who's going to live there, right? And now just like schools, as we see this heavy depopulation, particularly of black students in Chicago, who is this place being shaped? To be for right, right. So this, this, I think this is, and this, these are the questions that Vallis's comments now kip us to what ignorance does in those spaces. And now, when we shed light on it, it allows us to think about the possibilities. But again, it's that idea that the market cures all, and we know that to be anything but the truth. Anything but the truth. So. What else we got? Often wonder if you're a, a black kid, why wouldn't you become a criminal? If you're hearing this stuff in school, it's, you know, everybody with a with white skin is an oppressor. If you have black skin, you're the oppressed. Uh, that makes it pretty easy to justify uh, pretty bad conduct, in my opinion. Well, you can be, um, you're absolutely right. But what you're also doing, you know, you're giving people an excuse for bad behavior. You're you're almost justifying. You're almost justifying. And we see we see that attitude, uh, you know, we see the attitude in the state's attorney's office to why she there's just a failure to to charge people, uh, to prosecute people or to, uh, you know, uh, set bail for individuals who have long lists of felony convictions, let alone felony arrests. So you're right. You're absolutely right. I mean, why? I mean, where's the accountability? Uh, You know, you're you're a victim. What's happening is is it, it, it becomes a justification for everything. And I think that's a very dangerous thing. Well, there's a lot in there. A whole nother <laughs> podcast or two just in that. So I could hardly to, just breathe. To, to try to tick off a couple can, of things, just so, if I can keep them straight. So black education, it creates crime. <laughs> it um, it uh, eliminates accountability from anyone. Oh. And it essentially destroys the fabric of the community as we know it. First of all, I'm going to say this as the resident black woman <laughs> here. You go. If black people were to internalize everything white people had done, the the violence wouldn't be against each other. <laughs> See what I'm saying? Well, thank and, you. I appreciate and, that. And, 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 and you know why they talking about, well, how else would, what else would they, their criminality? No. Really? If we really, really understood the devastation of what's been done to us, the games that's been played, the the violence wouldn't just be in our communities. And to be honest, I think that's the bigger threat or that's the bigger fear that one day we will actually wake up and want to meet out mm-hmm. all of the violence that's been perpetrated against us, that we will not um, heed the call of turning the other cheek, that we will go back to an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth kind of justice, which, okay, I'm a, I want to keep um, my job. So I'm going to stop there. <laughs> but, I, I mean, but if we just put it out in the street, how it goes. When we talk about 
how we understand violence. There's something again, again, back to the refusal here in Chicago. We need to think about conflict as being engineered. Yes. So now we have to think about what engineers that conflict and a and a cop, a retired cop broke this thing down to me. He said, look, he found out like I had a, a old high school basketball teammate who was on a gang tactical unit. So I go, I tell him about some of the stuff that I'm doing. And he says, man, you need to talk to one of my old commanding officers. And I'm like, all right. But he says, look, he says, holler at him because he he's he's clear about some things. So I get on the phone with him and he says, look, he said, man, I heard, you know, what you've been doing and how you think about this. He said, man, look, I absolutely agree. But he says, I want to kick it up just a little bit more. He said, look, man, I'm going to tell you how to make a killer. And he said, we, we know this to be true. He said, look, this is all you have to do. You don't have a place for folks to live. You don't have anything for them to eat. You don't have any viable education system. You do not have access to living wage employment. Now you hire me to contain them and to contain them in the space with the hope that they will eliminate each other. He says, it's not how you make a killer. He says, it's how you make a monster, but he says, but here's the contradiction. We know that no black or brown child ever born on the planet is born with a natural propensity to crime. We know this, but what we fail to do is engage the things that we actually know deters crime, right? Because it's not policing. You will not arrest your way out of this, right? But here's what you can do. And no, this is a cop telling me. I'm like, what? It's, it's, so when you, as you drop it, and I want you to keep going, yeah. but what made what blood dinged for me is when you, when the cop said that, yeah. that was dropping this. How do you use that when you're having this conversation about defunding the police? And this is, and thank you so much for asking that because I think this is the thing. Because there's another part to defund, right? So when you say defund, the next part should be reappropriate. So now, and remember, you all know this better than anybody. In 2017, there were a thousand teachers fired. There were a thousand cops hired in their place. Wow. Did we see any results in terms of the decrease in crime? Right. Right. But here's what we know. Right. So I work in a criminology law and justice department. Here's what we know. Stops crime, deters crime, deters violence. Access to affordable long-term housing, access to living wage employment, access to quality education, access to viable health care, access to a healthy eating living source, eat, a healthy eating source. Sounds now, like you just described the suburbs. I know, well, right, and right, it sounded right. like you just described Brandon's platform. Right, right. <laughs> and, and so, so now let's put that all in context. We know that if folks have though access to those things, crime decreases anywhere from 75 to 90 percent. Wow. Look, we got a we got an example of this in Stockton, California. Right. So they had a living wage experiment. And this is the thing. So I go over this with my students all the time. This living wage experiment is I'm sorry, a guaranteed income. So they get 500 families 
a thousand dollars a month for a year. And then they just ran the data on it, looked at the results. 92% of those families, the first thing they did was pay bills. Right? That's the first thing 92% of the folks did. The second thing they did, and it was 93% of this grouping of people, 93% of the folks, after they paid bills, went to go and look for work. So this idea of the inherent criminal is a false one. Right. So this idea of folks feeling like, you know, this is if you teach knowledge of self and self-determination, that that's going to push you away from doing what you need to live in a harmonious environment. When what we know it actually pushes you towards, towards a harmonious environment. Okay. Right. So this thing around really putting that in the street and all these false notions because here in Chicago, right, we all, we got this idea around these incest, hyper violent young people. But if you've been dispossessed and if you've been treated in a particular way and now you have none of those resources that I've mentioned, none of them, none of them, right? So now if you are in survival mode, then the people who are most affected by someone who is in survival mode are the people who are in proximity to them. That's right. Right. So That's now, right. so now we know we know this to be true. Like this, this is the thing. This is the the thing that always gets, and it's always to take the blame back to neoliberalism, blame on the individual, no accountability to the state. Right. So now, what is it if I am paying taxes in this place? Then why can't I see redress? in housing? Why can't I see redress in education? Why can't I see redress in long-term living wage employment, right? So these things, I think, really become important. And the nonsense that Vallis is spewing allows us to kind of bring this other term to light, right, around really understanding how conflict can be engineered. And it is any time young folks are able to see themselves outside of the condition that brings them the most stress and trauma, they will move towards those positions that bring them less stress and trauma. Right? We know what I mean. This is this is basic just trauma. Science. This, this is yep. basic nature. trauma medicine, right? Yep. Sure. Yep. So so this thing around really putting that. So when we have that in our conversation, I think it allows us to rethink when we hear when we hear comments like Vallis's as nonsensical as they sound, but I think it's important. I really appreciate you all doing this because it puts the conversation back in the street to say, well, what are we really talking about here? Not only that, like one of the, thing, the things, and I'm so excited to like talk to you before I go talk mm-hmm. to a group of teachers because it's just amping me up in a different way. Um, but one of the things that I say when, when we start talking about this whole defund is when did you feel safe? What made you feel safe? And I probably have done this about three or four times with groups of people. And every single time, they'll say, oh, my school. Oh, I used to go to the boys club. I lived down the street from the grocery store. I remember when in in school, we would stay after school and they had all of these other kinds of programs. And I learned to bake and I learned to sew and I learned to do all these other things. And I said, so was policing ever a part of the conversation 
that made you feel safe or the idea of police? Was that ever a part just growing up thinking, oh, yeah, I feel safer because they're police? Never. Like in none of the conversations that I've had have people said I felt safer as a result of the police. As a matter of fact, I'm a I'm a middle aged woman. I wouldn't say I, that. I, well, you know, I'm a middle school. I, I got take you. It you know, you get older, you get cold. I'm good with it. <laughs> That's fair. I'm good with it. And I pay my bills, right? right? I don't apply this state mm. method because, you know, <laughs> <laughs> ain't nobody sitting at my crib talking about we got another way. So I pay the bill. You know, I do everything I'm supposed to do to be a law-abiding citizen. Yet and still, when, they drive, when the police drive up next to me or they're in yep. back of me, does my heart rate yep. go up mm-hmm. a little bit? Does my anxiety kind of kick in? Why is that? Because I've seen the way policing is done in my community. Right. And I've seen the way policing is done in other communities that don't look like me. And it's two different ways in which they police. We've watched this country and we've watched police in this country kill unarmed black people yep. time and time again. Yep. And I've watched m- School shooters mm-hmm. be yep. walked off the site. I've watched people who left one state, went to another state, kill two people and get off. Yep. And so I'm, I'm just incensed around the idea of how we've tried to make um, policing um, uh, the inroads or, or the thing that's going to creep, keep our community safe when that's never been the case. That's and right. it's certainly never been the case in black communities. No, I mean, it, it, if, if it, police were going to keep us safe, Chicago's got the most police per capita than any city in the country. If that were true, we'd be the safest city in the country. And we're not, not even close. So no matter how you feel about the police individually or as groups, that is not the solution to crime in Chicago. It just isn't. Demonstrably, it is not. I mean, it's, and I think when we come to grips around this, right, when you really understand that, look, quote unquote, crime fighting capacities just don't come in the form of, you know, this kind of carceral force that's kind of meant to kind of regulate you. Right. It only comes your best bet. And it talking about it as crime also is problematic, right? Because what we're really talking about is violence, right? So if you're talking about anything that quells violence, what are the things that bring folks harmony? Just like you said, young people always, you know, these sociologists have been doing this national youth study for about 50 years, right? Young people across the country, even when you disaggregate for race, right? So if you look at black youth, black youth say the thing that makes them feel safe is a sense of well-being, a caring adult, and a place where they can pursue their dreams. That's it, right? So now if we, if we think about it just in that way, right, that's your crime deterrent, right? If you got a place where young folks have caring adults who are willing to support them, and then we have opportunities for them to pursue their dreams and desires, there's no better t- deterrent for violence against themselves, other people, or folks even further away from Absolutely. Um, before we part company with this, with this brother, this urban scholar, um, 
I just I want to I want him to just kind of like as as succinctly as you can um, say what is the threat? What is the final threat uh, that Paul Vallis's offers Chicagoans, not just um, union members, right? But Chicagoans should he um, uh, should they allow be voted into you know mayor of the city? I think more of the same, which is even worse. That was succinct. He cut across the field on that, y'all. For real, though. Listen, we've enjoyed this. Thank you so much, Brother Stovall. Thank you uh, for Thank coming y'all. in. This was this was the bomb. So that was a lot. It was a lot. And I thought I was prepared, you know, because I know how awful Paul Vallis is. Yeah. But my head was exploding yeah. when I actually, you know, like to hear his own words, like to hear him actually say these things. That's right. Um, my head was exploding. It's so utterly offensive. And it comes out of his mouth so naturally that, you know, That's right. this is really what he believes, it's what right? what he believes. It's in and his so core. It's so frightening. And what's killing me is that we couldn't have an opportunity where the two candidates are, are so different, like so stark. That's like right. the choice has to be clear. It is. You either believe in, in this very backwards, very racist way of, 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 um, of running a city Or you want to go forward with Brandon, who has a new vision about how we can actually do politics in Chicago, where there 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 really is enough for everyone. That's right. And you know, even though I knew what Ballas was going to say, you know, prepping for the show, having it played out in front of everybody, and just seeing the shock on everybody's face when he's (laughs) saying that out loud, I wish we could have videoed it and shown it to the listeners. It was it was amazing just how offensive this is and just that it's part of his actual belief system and mm-hmm. how he would decide to run a city and or a public school system, or even a mcdonald's he would run it that way i mean it's crazy that somebody in 2023 espouses these beliefs and wants to push that on a city um that's as diverse as we are absolutely so get ready i mean I'm, I'm just i'm just glad we had this opportunity and i hope a lot of people have access to this conversation again before we uh, go vote on april, april 4th. 4th don't forget come don't out. forget early vote come out you yeah, know invite make sure everybody. everyone your friends and family students alike yep. anyone who you know is a voting age make sure that they turn out to vote that's right and if you want to give us a call here you can call us at 312-467-8888 or you could also email us at ctu speaks at ctu local one.org at ctu speaks where we only speak what matters there you go bye i remembered you did miss <laughs> park will be proud <laughs>